And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Cruise Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shrine and Gary K. Wolf, with the best-selling, multiple award-winning author of The 10,000 Doors of January, Alexi Harrow, on the Cruise Street Podcast! <laughs> Welcome, Alex. And if, you, if, you, if you're sticking with us after that introduction, I admire your courage. I feel like I should be, like, entering some sort of ring. Like, I think I have a fight now. <laughs> exactly. Just, it always just, just seems to me like some terrible intro to some bad episode, you know. But <laughs> but you want a little Muppet mu- mu- going, ah, in the background. At least I do something terrible about well, me. Decided, I mean, yeah, Jonathan and I have already decided they're Statler and Waldorf. So I guess the first question is, which Muppet are you? I don't do Muppets. They freak me out. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're a fantasy writer. I know. I know we're all supposed to have like very emotional attachments to like Labyrinth. <laughs> and I guess they have an emotional attachment to David Bowie, but like not <laughs> to those creepy Muppets. Just hang like even in Star Wars, I just feel like why is there an unsettling puppet in the corner of this perfectly fine space <laughs> show? <laughs> and I guess the same for the Dark Crystal, which is also oh, weird. Nightmares. Nightmare. That's actually Dark probably Crystal the root is... of my problems with all the other puppets is Dark Crystal. <laughs> Dark Crystal is creepy. Uh, people need to face up to that. So it's, what, five months since last we spoke, so we, since we had you on 10 Minutes With, and 10,000 Doors was a year old. So how have the last five months been? How are you coping with the madness of our time? Oh, how are you? It's such a loaded question now. You can't just throw that at people. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're doing pretty good. You know, I've I've been able to write because I have the luck to be able to mostly do that. And my husband mostly stays home. He works part-time at a library uh, and wrangles the kids. So, you know, I've been limping along in this weird state of sort of anxiety, mostly about the world outside of my house and not inside of my house. I live in a very safe, small little bubble. Mm-hmm. And... 10,000, well, it's it's been very successful, which is wonderful. I saw you had like seven reprints, this and that, and all these great, fantastic. But the book, to some degree, we're here to talk about is a book that's coming out in October called The Once and Witches. Before we even get into describing it, I've got a question. Where did it start? Where does The Once and Future Witches life start? It can't be right after you shut the last doors on January. No, it was like a second after I finished that one. And I was like, you know, going through the, the normal creative process of like having finished a book and being like oh that's it I'm never gonna write anything else I have no more ideas uh and just laying on the floor and then I was like wait 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 what if I did suffragettes but witches and so I had had that thought maybe like two days before I had my first call with Nivia Evans my editor at Orbit uh mm-hmm. and at the end of that call about 10,000 doors she was like by the way do you have any other ideas and I was like listen suffragettes but witches and that was the whole pitch and so it was a two book offer um, based on that so that's where the book comes from fueled did that come to you because you were thinking that the 100th anniversary of the uh, uh, voting rights amendment was coming up this year i mean i think i was definitely thinking about that because my husband works at a library so he was like putting together book displays like he's does children's library and things you know and like i'm definitely enough in the academic and educational world to know that people were doing events so i'm sure that was in the back of my head so if you have this idea for this elevator pitch which i'm gonna suspect that i could be wrong came to you almost at that moment what happened when it came to turning suffragettes but witches into like a story because it's a cool idea but that's not a story no it's not i noticed that too when i started to try and write it i was really offended actually uh and i learned a lot about the difference between a pitch and a story um Mm -hmm. 
So one of the things that sort of first hit me was how it sounds very fun and light and like, oh, that's obviously suffragettes and witches. That's great. And then it's immediately weighty um, because mm-hmm. women's history um, blows, actually. Like, it's really grim. And there's a lot of really grim stuff. And if you're really looking into the history of witchcraft or the history of suffrage movements in either U.S. or U.K., um, there's a lot of failure and suffering and punishment and and justice that is never served and it's really grim um and i don't know that right after the sort of like living in the 2016 election world was really the best mental health (laughs) moment to dive into women's history of women's experiences it was actually really grim for a long time um and so it was a really slow process of trying to like find my way towards a story that felt true to that history you know like didn't betray it and just like slap happy witchcraft on it and make everything great Mm. um but was still ultimately hopeful and felt like a story that i wanted to live in and write so it was a mess (laughs) what was the first part of the story you found i'm sorry what what was the first part of the story that you found um the first part i think it was I really latched on to the idea of three sisters that sort of fell into the maiden mother crone um, mm-hmm. mythological sort of structure. Uh, and that was because I both have always hated that structure because it's super sexist and terrible to like determine women's lives based on their reproductive yeah. status. That's obviously awful. Um, but also I'm really weak for tradition and for like <laughs> things that have this like ritual symbolic weight. And I've always sort of, loved and hated it simultaneously um and so i really liked the idea of having three main characters that were closely connected that could both kind of live out those archetypes and subvert them in ways to hopefully kind of like i don't know draw the poison out of this idea that i've always kind of liked Mm -hmm. it seemed to me you were having a lot of fun writing it though once you got going because there's just a lot of playfulness and one of the things i i I saw this um in the 10,000 Doors of January in a different way. Um, but you were, I mean, there's, there, it's serious stuff, but at the same time, it's full of Easter eggs for people who like to read fantasy. It's full of like clever little alternate history things like, I mean, real tragedies like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire is there, but it's square instead of triangle. And <laughs> I, 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 w- w- were you doing that for fun or, or because there's, there's a kind of ritualistic rhythm to them. Um, the, the once upon a time thing, uh, you described the sisters, something that impressed me, you described them initially by the color of their hair, and then as the novel moves, moves along, they're described more by character. They become more real characters and less fairy tale. Yeah, I was having a lot of fun, actually, and that's the only time I finally was able to actually get words down and make it move. Like, I spent a long time rewriting the first, I don't know, 20,000 words over and over mm-hmm. again, being like, nope, that wasn't it. Nope, that wasn't it. And it took basically being comfortable enough with the real history, like having gotten deep enough into the research to start to have fun with it and play. And the other decision that really like helped so much was basically deciding to abandon actual historical timelines. Mm -hmm. Um, Because with 10,000 Doors, I was like pretty, like every book that is mentioned was published actually when it is mentioned, you know, like, like it's, it's pretty historically specifically correct. And, and I tried to fit the doors into real history Mm-hmm. to make them like fold in kind of invisibly and with this one like when you're trying to write a story that fits into something like the women's suffrage movement that's like an enormous mm. transatlantic movement that happens over two centuries and so right. like 
even if you're defining it fairly narrowly as like Western women's suffrage. Um, and so like that was huge and a mess and I couldn't fit all of these like figures and ideas and, and kind of philosophical battles into one like thing that would be a novel at the end. Um, <laughs> and so the decision to basically be like, don't care about any of that and putting it all into one summer in a made up store in a made up city was so freeing and allowed me to have so much more fun. I could have any reference I wanted slightly changed. I could put the, even though the triangle shirtwaist fire wasn't until much later, I could put it right. in 1893 because I wanted it there. And it was really great. <laughs> we should back up a little bit because a lot of the people listening to this presumably won't have read the novel. If they've read the novel by the time they're listening to this, then we're way late getting this out. Uh, but essentially it is an alternate history in which the Salem trials were real trials and uh, a, I guess a couple of centuries later, these three sisters of a horrible father manage to escape. The youngest sister shows up in a city called New Salem, which I assume is not any particular New Salem because there are New Salems around. There's one in Illinois even. Um, and they, they reunite as a result of a kind of massive supernatural vision, which is your first big special effect. It's the first, I always think of this, the first big CGI moment in the novel is when this tower appears in the middle of the town. And that, that leads them to confront, and this is the other thing, which you cannot, you may, you may be right, you can't maybe write without thinking about this, but the minute there's a really awful uh, populist politician show up in it, this year there's only one way to read that. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean him to be as direct and analog as he turned out being. And I also didn't mean there to be a sickness, a disease theme that, like, mm -hmm. was made worse by political actions. I didn't really intend that to be as, like, painfully on the nose as it is. <laughs> I, 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 it's not your fault, because my new theory about this whole thing is uh, there's a there was a wonderful... Um, novel by Jeffrey Ford uh, uh, about uh, a sequel to Moby Dick about Ahab in which he has the know-nothing party in the 1850s. And there's a clear character that, that looks like Trump. And my theory is this. You're not writing an analog of Trump. Trump is an analog of all these evil male politicians <laughs> in literature going back to uh, Sinclair Lewis. Well, it's <laughs> Octavia Butler's, what are the, Parable of the Sower? Those Parable books. of the Sower has this and guy. And she literally has a political figure who I think his slogan is something like, make America great, his or something like really America. chilling. Exactly, yeah. exactly the kind of thing. So, so don't, don't blame yourself for looking like Trump. Trump is the one who looks like a fictional figure. <laughs> <laughs> Just not from any fiction you want to read. Um, well, <laughs> or at least live through. Uh, <laughs> so, so question for you about the, about the book. Uh, it is immediately when you see it. I've not seen a physical copy yet, but I've seen an arc of it. It is not as, how would I put this politely, trim as the 10,000 Doors of January. It is a more... <laughs> immersive how was it diving into a book like that did you know at the outset that you were going to be in there for a while or did it just no. evolve into that <laughs> someone has described it on twitter rubenesque and i'm really i'm gonna live in that um so the first draft of this book was maybe sixty thousand words shorter Mm -hmm. uh, that's the first one that I sent to my editor and in my head the metaphor for that draft has been like stuffing a mattress into a pillowcase like <laughs> it was a bad draft because it was incredibly rushed and forced I had tried to have all of the threads that I haven't like there there wasn't a huge new plot line added in all those 60,000 words there were no new characters really added it was all just like compressed because I felt like I had to tell this what had become an accidentally massive story 
in this very trim, normal <laughs> workout, <laughs> just like the last book. Uh, and all of my edit notes, which there were a lot of, thank you, Nivia, if you ever hear this, um, there were a lot of edit notes and almost all of them were, let us see X, Y, and Z. Like, like I had done so much in sort of tight little bits of exposition that you never really got to see or feel anything change and move. Um, and it was pretty dry and it was pretty bad actually. And so when I rewrote it all, cause I did just start from the beginning and completely rewrite it. I just like didn't even look at the word count and actually to the point that I didn't mean to, but I didn't realize I'd like turned off a part of Scrivener's word count. So at a certain point it just stopped (laughs) adding words and I had no idea how out of control it had gotten until the very end when I compiled it into a word document and sent it to my agent. And I was like, I am so sorry. (laughs) It's like 170,000 words now. Um, And it was a lot better that way. And it's sort of that, you know, that advice where people are like, you never actually figure out how to write books. You just figure out how to write the book that you're writing. And I feel like that sprawl, which I hope isn't like something that is endemic to my writing forever, was the only way maybe to get out as big and messy a story as I was trying to tell in that book. I hope. I'm just going to say, I I, I read it before I had the arc, uh, which was an odd experience because I'm still not used to reading things on, it wasn't a Kindle file, but it was some kind of an electronic arc. But it was one of those things where you couldn't tell where you were in the book. Uh, you didn't know what page you were on, and you didn't. So I didn't know how long the book was when I was reading it. I'm and, sorry. <laughs> well, no, no. The, 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 it's a, the story has a good ending, because when I got the arc, I thought, holy, I read, this book was that long? It didn't feel that long at all. <laughs> I, I will back that up. It doesn't read long. No. It doesn't read long. Um, do you, what, what I was going to ask was, do you think it's changed the way you approach writing a story now? I mean, each thing is learning, and I understand that you learn how to write the book you're writing when you write it, but also you then, having gone through that experience, presumably bring something out of that into the next thing you do. Yeah, my thing that I am taking out of it is, uh, number one, don't start writing it until you actually confidently can hear it. Like, you know, like... It's such an effort to write sentences when you don't 100% know what the tone of the book is mm-hmm. for me. Like, And, and I, I have a hard time finding that tone as I go along. And I, I think it's okay to just sort of play around for a while and not feel like I have to hit some sort of word count goal. Um, but the other big thing is to not fight the book so much. Like... It wanted to be too long the whole time. I was constantly reining myself back and being like, mm-hmm. well, I can't have that scene. Maybe if I smash mm-hmm. these together, maybe if I reduce this whole scene back to a paragraph of exposition. And it's it was forced. Yeah. And if I'm constantly fighting the way I want to write it versus the story, like then I've done like to look at it and be willing to change it rather than than anxiously force myself to finish it the wrong way. It's my hopefully my new lesson. The other thing that I would. I'm glad you didn't cut out. You have a. You have a lot of. As as in Ten Thousand Doors of January, there are a lot of allusions to earlier stories. There are a lot of allusions to traditions. There are interpolated fairy tales, which I thought were just wonderful. Um, and they certainly added thematically. They added in terms of the characters who were telling them. But in terms of the main narrative, they didn't move that forward really. Uh, but but they were great, and the whole celebration of fairy tales. And the, the reinvention of fairy tales, because you mentioned the alternate history, but you didn't know, you didn't mention that the alternate history goes back to uh, the brothers. Uh, all the great fairy tale collectors and scholars are women now. Uh, Charlotte Peralt and Andrea Lang and the <laughs> Sisters Grimm and uh, even even Alexandra Pope. 
<laughs> you, at least you didn't make the. I don't know. Maybe you did. Was the Iliad written by a woman in this uh, in this universe? I don't think I mentioned the author of the Iliad, but okay. maybe honestly. <laughs> <laughs> No, my theory, if you have, like, women who are preserving, uh, like, important magic bits of their spells in folklore and stories and, and nursery rhymes and stuff, then I figured more of them would be coincidentally interested in the preservation of yeah. folklore, fairy tales, and collections, and translations, and stuff like that. That's my excuse, but really, it was just very fun. That's what I thought. That's that's what comes across. <laughs> One of the, the joys of the book is the its voice, the voice of the sisters together. And then, you know, the voice of the narration around it in many ways. Where did you find the tone that you wanted to bring in the spells, the fairy tale, that kind of thing into the narrative? Um, it's several. It's kind of a uh, Frankensteinian monster mash of a lot of different things. Because um, the sisters, at first when I wrote them, they were from New Salem. And then at a certain point in drafting, I realized that I'd never really lived in a city for very long and had no idea what was that, that was like. And like their voices were wildly inauthentic. Um, and so I just caved and made them from a place very much like Eastern Kentucky and gave them my family's history and like, you know, a lot more personality. So I had like sort of an Eastern Kentucky um, vision of history and storytelling that, that I wanted to have their actual like tone and the way they interact with each other. And then I had like, I wanted to have this fairy tale feeling to it all since all of it has it, like their magic is being pulled from fairy tales and nursery rhymes. I wanted to have this, this sense that this too would one day be a story that is told and preserves its own sort of things in it. Um, and then I wanted it to feel a little bit, but not as maybe self-consciously as 10,000 doors was, um, the feeling of 19th century fiction, you know, like mm -hmm. a little bit of arts narration and a little bit of that, like, yeah. um, obvious tone, I guess. Even alliteration in describing them. I, um, just, I'm trying to remember when, uh, you're describing, um, each of the sisters by, by her characteristics. And, uh, it's the strong one. I, let, let, let me hold on. <laughs> uh, talk among yourselves. We'll talk uh, among yourselves. I, I, Actually, I, I, while, I, he's no, that, uh -huh. while he's doing that, while he's doing that, Here's my question for you. One of the reasons I ask about the spells is because when I think about them, the voice I heard was, did you ever see the musical Waitress or the film Waitress? Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. spells strike me as being the voice of the mother reading the recipes for her. I think that's about right, actually. Yeah, I think that's the tone. <laughs> okay, what, actually, I was looking for, yeah, what yeah. I was looking for with this, just to get back to it. Uh, um, these are quotations from your novel. The wild sister, fearless as a fox and curious as a crow. Agnes, James, the younger one. Agnes, the strong sister, steady as a stone and twice as hard. I mean, you're getting into folk rhythms of, 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 of tale telling there. And then uh, yeah. Beatrice, clever as, okay, clever as an owl isn't quite as um, alliterative, but nevertheless, these are like ritualistic gestures of storytelling. I feel like that's partly the fairy tale and folkloric thing, but it's also, um, I thought a lot about like my family stories. Mm -hmm. When I was writing this, and I, I do, I've come to kind of believe in sort of an oral Southern tr storytelling tradition, and there's like, there's a, there's a rhythm to it, and like, yeah. a, and it's often repetitive, and it's often alliterative, and like, my, my mammy tells a bunch of stories, and my mom all told stories, and then like, so I was trying to have a little bit of something that could maybe believably be this sort of Western fairy tale tradition, but also is something more personal that I grew up hearing. <laughs> right. Well, actually, you, you've said in interviews about the 10,000 Doors of January that to some degree, January is based on you. Is there someone that James Juniper, Agnes Amaranth, and 
Beatrice Belladonna are based on, or are they entirely fictional constructs? I mean, so look, I mean, the truth is, if you were to split me into three people, you might have one who was an academic and one who was a mom and one who was like an idiot. And that would be like (laughs) (laughs) the three parts of my personality. So again, they're definitely based on me a little bit. Um, And they're definitely based more on like women in my family. So like, honestly, their story in Eastern Kentucky is very much kind of my mom's story. It's a vision of my mom's story um, in a different time period. Mm. Uh, so I guess my mom and I guess me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, 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 the the story, I want to bring in another thing because I was thinking about, I've not read all of your short fiction and there's not a lot of it, but there's one story that seems to me to be a bridge between the two novels. And that is the witch's guide to, I want to say the witch's guide to escape. Or the Witch's Guide to Alternate History. It's super long. No, that's okay, right. It's a complicated <laughs> title, but it's about a librarian. It, it's, it's basically has a librarian at its center, but it also deals with books literally as salvation. And yeah, I mean, I wrote that short story in the middle of writing 10,000 Doors, and I think the fun of inventing my own system of witchcraft is definitely one reason that I, when I was thinking of, like, what do I want to write next? I was like, that was really fun. There's a lot that you could do with witchcraft. And then here's Agnes, a librarian. Yeah. And a a college library, interestingly enough. And your (laughs) husband works part-time at a college library. Is that right? Yes. Well, look, all the good (laughs) stuff is at the college library archives. You're not going to find much cool. And the history of public libraries is very complicated. 1893, there weren't very many of them. I spent way too long deciding which library she worked at. (laughs) It seems to me that one of the things that makes the Once and Future which is timely in the way storytelling is going at the moment, is that it is a story of witches and witchcraft which seem to be on the rise at the moment. Were you aware of that when you were coming up with a story? And why do you think that that seems to speak to the time so much? Um, yeah, so I wasn't aware of it so much when I was drafting, except that witches feel like they're always a little bit trendy. Like, do they ever really go out of fashion? Mm-hmm. Um, but when we were trying to come up with a title, I became very suddenly aware that the, all the witch book titles were taken. <laughs> um, <laughs> and a lot of them were like forthcoming or, or recent books. Um, and a lot of them are great, like The Year of the Witching and and uh, The Wayward Witch and all these like great books. But they did take my titles. Um, (laughs) and I think, I mean, like, this is one of those difficult questions because I don't want to be the kind of person who every time somebody is like, why do you think we're talking about women's issues or women's empowerment? You're like, well, it's the Me Too movement. I'm a little bit tired of every women's issue being tied back to the Me Too movement. But also there's a way in which witchcraft is inherently sort of a fantasy of power and specifically a gendered idea of power. Um, even if it wasn't historically always technically just to like to save off the historians, always technically a gendered idea, it has become a very gendered idea. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a really freeing fantasy in the idea of a power that is not political and can't be taken away and is sort of an innate magical thing that women might specifically wield. <laughs> I think you're right. I don't think that's related specifically to Me Too. Maybe Me Too has made that kind of fiction more... Uh, successful, but it, it seems to me one of the ancestors of all this movement is, is Angela Carter, who was writing about uh, women's uh, power in and, and rewriting fairy tales in this way, what, 30, 40, 50 years ago now. Yeah, there's definitely a long tradition of witch literature, for sure. <laughs> so, well, uh, I was just going to say, going back to uh, a, a little bit the um, the issue of, of women's suffrage, and it's it's a question that's come up 
I used to, I have, I'm retired from teaching, but it used to come up when I teach books like this. Um, and you're dealing with uh, a very significant, significant part of women's history in this. Um, uh, recently, uh, Annalee Newitz wrote The Future of Another Timeline, which deals also with the women's suffrage movement from a science fiction perspective, but in more or less the same time period you're talking. And the question my students would come up with is this. If you're dealing with serious um, issues that are, are still with us today that, are, that we have to grapple with, do you diminish that by introducing the fantastic into it or by treating it through a fantastic lens? Oh, now, I, have my I, own love, that <laughs> I yeah. love that question. I love that question. Because it's a soapbox question. Yeah, I love, yeah, I, I love getting on soapboxes. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, basically, that's the question that is asked of fantasy all the time. Exactly. Like, if you are dealing with any sort of um, significant issue that exists in the real world and you are introducing a fantastical element, are you somehow reducing it or making it less than? And see, my example is that I think the thing that fantasy can do that every other genre can't is that it can take invisible things and make them visible through the use of magic like it can make metaphors literal like we are always talking about women's power but only in a fantasy book do you actually get to turn men into pigs that's cool yes. <laughs> like and i just really i'm sorry present company accepted um and and so like i just feel like they, it's actually fantasy is in some ways more suited to deal with these really heavy and intense themes that are often dealing with invisible power structure because they have the metaphorical tools to make it literal and to make it visible to everyone. That's my soapbox. Okay. <laughs> well, it ties in something that crossed my mind about the book, and that is when you talk about literalizing invisible power structures and everything else. When it came to, to casting the book itself, you know, how aware were you of representation in the, the text and how much of it did it simply come from the evolution of the narrative as you approached it? Yeah. Um, so this is a super important question and this is the kind of question I think I would like to be able to answer casually and be like, Oh, you know, the characters just came to me straight out of history, but I thought so much about it all the time. It was <laughs> one of the things I thought about most. And that's, it comes from what I said earlier about like, you say you're going to write about the women's movement and all of a sudden it becomes very, very heavy. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it also becomes extremely political who you include and who you don't um, because the women's movement in particular is kind of one of the like best examples in American historiography of the way we can whitewash a narrative, mm -hmm. you know, like, like um, we have told it as a triumphal story of, of predominantly white women sort of linking elbows and marching on the Capitol and then they get the vote and everyone goes home happy. Um, and that's obviously really complete. Like who got the vote exactly in 1920? If you were a Chinese American woman, you didn't get it until 1943. If you're a black woman in the South, you didn't get it until 65. And if you were convicted of a felony in the state of Kentucky where I live right now and you're a woman, you still don't have the vote. Um, so I was very conscious of that, you know, like I studied history. I know the actual history of women's suffrage was much more divided and complicated and diffuse and often wasn't linking arms at all so much as it was throwing various women under the bus completely. Sure. Um, yeah. And I found it really, really fraught, particularly when I had my three central characters as three white women, three Southern white women, and thinking about like how easy it would be to create a exclusionary and ugly vision of the women's suffrage movement that I didn't like. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so it was fraught 
the other part of it that was fraught was was that once you talk about witchcraft, we we have an extremely Eurocentric vision, kind of a collective right. mainstream vision of witchcraft too, right? Like yeah. those are all European traditions. We're all obsessed with like Druidism and Stonehenge and whatnot and stuff that doesn't apply in any meaningful way to people of other backgrounds. And so it didn't really make sense. Once I decided I was going to have like kind of a diverse cast, having them all use European nursery rhymes just didn't work at all. It just (laughs) fell apart. Um, So it took like a lot of additional research and thought to sort of assemble a cast that I hoped wasn't like, I didn't want it to feel sort of like, um, sugar-coated and pretty mm-hmm. and like, oh, all of these people from different backgrounds just got along easily and great and it wasn't fraught at all and no one was racist. I didn't want that feeling, um, but I also wanted, as part of like throwing out the real historical timeline, I wanted to be able to sort of represent the pieces of American suffrage that are often left out, all into one. <laughs> well, one of, so, for, that, for that reason, one of the interesting characters was Cleopatra, what's her full name? Um, Quinn. Cleopatra Quinn. Cleopatra Quinn, who, who I, maybe because I'm in Chicago, was, was thinking sounded to me a little bit like Ida B. Wells, who was a journalist who was behind this. But you also, besides her, and she's a journalist who edits some newspaper called The Defender, which is Chicago's historic um, African-American newspaper. But the other thing that surprised me, because it, it reminded me of something which I guess I'd read in history, the, the role of Eastern European women in the uh, labor movement. And so you have... Um, not only have an important Russian character in the novel, but you have fairy tales associated with them. So, so you have Aunt Nancy, for example, or there's a Baba Yaga story in it. Um, and I thought you're you're not only including them, and you're right. There's there's always a danger that people can say you're just including things because you need to. But they get their own fairy tales, and the fairy tale tradition extends to uh, to African American traditions and to Eastern European traditions, and um, and, and and so it's it's kind of a a wonderfully inclusive narrative in that. I hope it worked. I mean, you can never really know until readers of all, of even more backgrounds than my sensitivity readers, re- get a hold of it and kind of react and have their own personal reactions. But I, I hope yeah. that I made it feel that way. Did taking it out of, if you like, the real world and putting it into a new Salem, a fictional Salem, give you the ability to restructure the world, to tell the narrative in a more balanced way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was part of the big freedom, was that I didn't have to... Like, if I'd been adhering adhering strictly to the vision of, like, America in 1893, then I would have had to, like, think about all the different times that various, like, immigrant women activists in the labor movement, that often happened a little bit later, more like in the Mm -hmm. early 20th century. Um, And black women's groups have been active since right after the Civil War. You know, like, like, all these timelines, these things that happened not simultaneously and not even always in direct conversation with each other. Um, and I was able to sort of like shove that away and pull out like individual figures and pretend they all hung out in the same city in the same summer. And and I think magic, again, kind of gives you this freedom to like give them something else other than sort of the very in some ways distant idea of rights like women's rights that can feel very abstract but if you have magic then it's like this very practical power they're all trying to get access to and i kind of had the idea that like that would have crossed racial and class barriers maybe more effectively than they were crossed in real life Mm. that the the fight to find and sort of pool knowledge surrounding magic would have been its, its own draw let me ask a question which is so complicated i can't even think how to ask it just yet but 
the you're right. The, the idea of gaining women's rights uh, and the idea of gaining minority rights, gaining uh, workers' rights, gaining immigrants' rights, all this becomes mixed up in this period of history. And the rights are worth fighting for primarily because other people have these rights. White males have these rights and nobody else does. So the parallel to that in the fantasy world is, is magic, obviously. And one of the traditions of, it's, it's kind of a tradition in feminist fantasy is that magic and witchcraft are the power of women. But in this novel, the men have that power also. And so, so, so I think there's a parallel between like civil rights on the one hand, civil rights are worth fighting for because these people have them and we don't. Men can misuse magic just as badly as they can misuse politics in this novel. And one, it, it doesn't become obvious early in the novel, but later on you realize uh, that, that women don't have uh, a, a kind of um, monopoly on magic. Uh, they just get blamed for when it's misused. <laughs> I mean, is that not the world we live in, though? That's exactly <laughs> what <I'm saying. laughs> Yeah. No, I was, I'm like super conscious of, of sort of genre tropes you know like i read a lot of fantasy and right. and one of the ones that i think i liked a lot when i was a kid but i have become increasingly skeptical of is gendered magic systems like yeah we're increasingly as a culture questioning gender binaries and i think that's great and healthy and good and i therefore like if i were to imagine that magic exists as like this elemental force in the world do i really think that it adheres strictly to like uh western 20th century modes of gender like probably not like it's, it would just be something that could be accessed and the way we access it would hugely culturally informed by like our gender hierarchies and, and stuff like that so so, so political power I mean, that's a parallel that runs throughout the book is a parallel between political power and essentially magical power and and, and this guy oh, we should mention this because it's he's congratulations he's a genuinely scary villain <laughs> okay, let me ask you this. You start, you, you've, you're a historian, you've experienced mm -hmm. as a librarian, a librarian in your family. Um, where did you start encountering genre fiction? What is your personal history with the field? Because the one thing that's clear is th that your, your love of the genre, as well as your love of folk and fairy tales and story, have really informed what you're doing. So, so where did you start? Uh, my mom's a huge nerd actually <laughs> i love her very much um yeah she was an enormous just reader of all genres but definitely specifically fantasy uh and she had shelves just absolutely full of like Anne mccaffrey and octavia butler and like all these these people who i now can sort of fit into a narrative of uh, like a timeline of of the genre but at the time i just sort of consumed in one giant like piece um and actually she is a person who um changes quickly and, and or just like is always aware of changing culture so like we discovered young adult fantasy together even mm -hmm. though it was aimed and marketed very much at like me in middle school like we read all the tamora pierce books together and we read all the robin mckinley books together and sort of like you know, we played video games together. Like we, we sort of like moved into the more marketed and mainstream out of the like mass paperback era of fantasy and into the like mainstream era together. And we just read a lot and talk about them a lot. <laughs> but it sounds like you read both science fiction and fantasy and not just uh, the, because there is a, you, you could just trace a lot of uh, traditional fantasy, You're right? Then Tamara Pierce and Robin McKinley and Diana Wynne Jones and all the way back to, E. Nesbitt and uh, 
Francis. Oh, yeah. She she also has an English degree and uh, got her PhD when I was like in early high school years. So and and in like literature. And so like we read a lot of 19th century literature together also. So all the children's fantasy, all the Victorian children's fantasy. I ate that as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find that now becomes a wellspring that you draw upon when you are looking to come up with new stories of your own? Because a lot is made of science fiction being an ongoing discussion, but not as much in some ways of fantasy being exactly the same thing. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, and partly that's because I do skew towards fantasy. Like, I read science fiction, too, but not nearly um, as much as I read fantasy for whatever reason. Maybe because it was just marketed more heavily towards young middle school girls (laughs) when I was that age, and I'm very impressionable. Um, But I just feel like there's a huge swaths of people like me who have um, these groundings in sort of, like, girls' coming-of-age stories with magic and and i think they have a lot of nostalgia for those and also see a lot of the problems with them and so like Mm -hmm. i I think a lot of the fantasy being written now is like very thoughtful about things like gender and things like um race and power in ways that it wasn't when i was in middle school um and i love to see the the genre sort of moving forward in cool ways (laughs) i like yeah in in a way i've thought that uh one of the key one of the key novels in the last 50 years in terms of rethinking fantasy was probably Ursula Le Guin's Tahanu, in which she Oh my god. Okay, she rethought everything she'd said about Earthsea and thought, okay, we have to start over now. I know. It is an amazing book. And it's one that I didn't get when I first read it. Like when it first came out, it didn't it didn't like hit me that way. I was like, well, kind of where's the adventure? And it wasn't until I was a lot older and I reread it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a deconstruction of adventure. Like this is this is a criticism of heroism the way we've seen it. This is her talking to herself in just such a smart and thoughtful way about like what makes a hero and what is power and what is what is a story worth telling. And I think that that's hopefully indicative of where the genre as a whole is going. And it makes me think of the interview I read um, with Charles Vess from his illustrated um, Earthsea book. Earth. Yeah, and he talked about like sending her drafts of his drawings and how she would be like, no, it needs more goats because she was so (laughs) interested in it being like this epic story, even her older works, like epic stories that are happening in very lived in and real environments where people are doing laundry and they have goats and chickens and stuff like that. And I just think that's amazing. (laughs) When I see you on social media, you're constantly talking about the books you're reading and obviously books have been central to your life i'm curious do you feel part of the moment in fantasy at the moment that there is a cohort of writers that you feel a part of or do you feel more like you're there in sort of rural kentucky all by yourself doing your thing (laughs) i don't know maybe both i don't really necessarily feel like i'm part of a cohort um uh and partly that's like I've never been to an in-person convention or a conference. Like I haven't met any of the people that I'm hanging out with on Twitter. Um, And partly that's just because like, I don't know. I I feel like my books are very personal to me Mm -hmm. and like drawing on a lot of my personal nostalgia in a way that books like, um, I don't know, the future of another timeline or a memory called empire or Gideon the ninth, they feel very like new and shiny Mm -hmm. and cool in ways that are like, um, uh, I don't know, like, they feel like a next step forward, and I just feel like I'm chilling and talking to myself about stories that I like a lot. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I'm see, not see, trying to denigrate uh, my work. I just don't think... See, see I don't think I could agree with that. See, I think that 
the Once and Future Witches is just as bright and shiny as those <laughs> books are. In fact, oh. when I look at when I look at say um, a memory called Empire, which is a book that I love, right? Loved. Mm-hmm. Only, only read it very recently. Read Desolation Called Peace right after, it, and love it too. But the moment I, I mean, I spoke to uh, Arcady Martin about the book. And she's going like, "This is not influenced by the people you think it's influenced by. Influenced by C.J. Cherry's Foreigner." Yeah. Of course it is. That is exactly no, what it is, she, right? I, I heard her say that too, and I was like, oh, yeah, it is. You're like, <laughs> uh. um, But because Once in Future Witches is as engaged with its this time as those stories are, I think it shares that same timeliness. Otherwise, it wouldn't have the kind of things in it that we've been talking about. It wouldn't have that inclusiveness to it, that awareness of, of who sits in the story and who sits outside the story and these kind of things. I think. I mean, I also just the most exciting. I mean, and this is not to crap on any of my fellow writers who I love very much, but like the most exciting fantasy in science fiction is coming from people whose voices we haven't heard before in Mm -hmm. insignificant numbers. And I just feel like if you really want to talk about the forefront of fantasy and science fiction writing, it's like Peter Jelly Clark and and River Solomon and and um, Tasha Suri and R. F. Kuang and like all these people who are who are writing stories that we literally haven't heard before or if we have they were small presses and they were forgotten quickly and they weren't given commercial backing and i'm i'm very excited about them <laughs> well i, 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 I think I, I agree that that's but when you, when you mention things like a memory called empire for example um or um or well my point is that many writers today are addressing the history of the genre in interesting ways. They're, they're reinventing space opera. They're reinventing uh, dystopian fiction in various interesting ways. The, the Jelly Clark uh, novel that I just uh, recently Ring finished, uh, Ringshot, is, is, is about, it's, it's hilarious. It's a hilarious comedy, folk comedy about the Klan. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, wow. It makes you rethink not only uh, earlier fantasy, it makes you rethink the history of movies and things like that. Um, and if you're in that, uh, so this is a way in which I'm putting you in that cohort. If you want to revisit classic fantasy, that's as valid a thing to be doing as revisiting classic space opera. Re- re- everybody's revisiting Lovecraft. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and improving on him in many ways. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I also love the city we became. (laughs) (laughs) Or like Mexican Gothic doing the Gothic horror novel, just in a really great way. (laughs) Yeah, and I was just talking to Andrea Stewart, whose book is just out as well, and feels of a piece with all of this. I love that one. Yeah, that one felt so like big '90s fantasy with lots of point of view characters, but also really new and fresh and cool and smart i really liked it <laughs> are you finding that you enjoy evangelizing about books mm-hmm. i think it was what i was born to do honestly like writing is secondary to the fact that i get early copies of books and i am rewarded through algorithms and likes on the internet for talking about those books. <laughs> I just, that's amazing that's great that's the dream <laughs> That's one of the things I thought about that short story I mentioned earlier, because it's it's interleaved with titles that you're recommending to library <laughs> patrons. And I, I just had this thought, this is, in part, a fantasy about a person who wants to recommend books to library patrons. That's very true. Those are the real call numbers in our real library. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> and that whole idea for that story came because 
this extremely dorky but very cute thing that my best friend and I used to do in college was locate each other by call number in the college library, like oh text each other just a call number, and that's where we would be at a certain time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, the Once and Future Witches will be in bookstores around the world in three or four weeks, which must well, be a little terrifying. Yeah. What are you doing now? Oh, some things I can't say. (laughs) 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 I'm working really hard on something that I cannot talk about. It's crazy. Um, Let's see. I, it, what can I say about it? It is, the closest thing I could say is that it is like Mexican Gothic, but if it were Kentucky Gothic. So every book I write seems to get increasingly Kentucky. (laughs) Closer (laughs) to home. Rather than less. I'm worried that I am getting, I'm going to become a Stephen King and everything I write is set in rural Maine, but I, I'm going to pull back after this, I promise. Um, <laughs> and the other wrong. things I'm working on, I think you're fairly familiar with. I've <laughs> <laughs> read. By the way, mention that the short story is, it's still available online, isn't it? Yeah, uh, the... yeah that's Apex, Apex Magazine. Okay, Apex Magazine. So that's the, well, what's the title again? I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. don't even know if I know the full title. <laughs> it's a witch's guide to escape a practical which, compendium of portal fantasies. There you right. go. <laughs> and the almost could be a, a quick curiosity. Where did you pick up the term portal fantasy? Uh, I want to say one of Mom's PhD classes. <laughs> I feel like that was on her syllabus. It might have been the Farrah Mendelssohn book, honestly. Farrah certainly. Uh, normalized the term. I think it had been around before then, but uh, yeah, it's 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 clearly a kind of uh, if you're defining fantasy by narrative movement, it's a kind of fantasy. Yeah, yeah. So okay, Once a Future Witches, kind of a novella out next year, mm-hmm. which is going to be <laughs> wonderful. It's come come out very well. Is there is there a left turn you're keen to take that people haven't encouraged you to take yet? Are you someone who secretly yearns to write space opera and do something different? Or is this, this does this feel like the thing you want to be doing? Oh, this is totally the thing I want to be doing. And the cool thing about um, getting to write like fantasy standalones, like mm. like having started with these, is that it feels like if I wanted to make a left turn, unless this, unless it was like into, I don't know, a mystery crime thriller or something, like there's a, there's a lot of space to do that. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I like about science fiction and fantasy, like as a writing ecosystem, is that whatever the idea you have is, there's like a size to fit it and a market for that. You know, like there's novellas and there's short stories and there's flash fiction and there's novels and there's trilogies. Like there's there's literally any space you want. And I think that's fantastic. So it feels like any idea I have will fit where I am. I would not be self-conscious if I were you about uh, being from Eastern Kentucky, because there is another tradition of kind of American folk fantasy that has not really been explored as much. Andy Duncan does this with the South all the time. Uh, I'm trying to think of Kentucky fantasy writers. Terry Bisson grew up in Louisville, but he went Christopher to New York. Rowe. Christopher, Christopher Rowe. Rowe and Gwenda Bond are and just Gwenda up Bond. the road. <laughs> so, 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 so there is a Mid-South Gothic, not quite Yoknopatawpha County, but nevertheless... <laughs> yeah. so, an area that needs to be explored. Yeah, I mean, it's coming. Lee Mandela's book, Summer Suns. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. They're in Lexington right now, and it's an extremely Southern Gothic book. It's fantastic. Um, and Ashley Blooms, who's actually in Berea, like a mile away from me, has her book just came out, Every Bone a Prayer, and it's being marketed very lit um, uh-huh. but 
it's super fantasy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know where she comes from, and it's Shimmer Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> let me just ask you, do you have any desire to commit an act of trilogy, or are you happiest at the moment in, in the world of standalone? I am, my mind is blown trying to imagine plotting a whole trilogy. It just feels like magic. I don't like I don't understand how you could be committed to writing. Even a sequel blows my mind, to be honest, <laughs> because, like, I write each book, like, you know, nine times or something, trying to, like, fold in all these little <laughs> pieces. And the ability to not go back to the beginning and rewrite what you had here so that it looks more clever at the end of book three, I would, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, in surely, I mean, the impression I get when I, in, when we've spoken everything else is there are a thousand stories in your mind kind of thing. And when you commit trilogy, you're like committing. It's like one of the most terrifying things I've seen was when Steven Erickson committed his book of Malazan or the Malazan Empire series. It's like, I will write 10 books, each this thick, one every year for 10 years. And like he does. And that strikes me like, a, like it's, it's your whole life. Yeah. That's a nightmare scenario for me, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. In, in Steve's defense, he always knows what he's going to do. I keep, and, uh, and a little bit like I George know, Martin but it makes me think of. Yeah. I just listened to like uh, a podcast about the longest running Broadway show in New York City, and it's like a woman who's been performing the same play for twenty two years, <laughs> like the same role eight times a week, and it just is like it's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like it, but still. Okay. Well, we're kind of getting towards the end of our hour, which is what we normally So we'll begin to wind up. But, I mean, apart from saying thank you for making the time and thank you for letting us, you know, sharing the, the once and future which is with us, I will say that there is a book called A, Spl a, Spl a Spindle Splintered coming. <laughs> and hopefully some short stories and everything else. It's going to be an interesting, I think it's going to be an interesting year for you. Hopefully the pandemic will pass and... We'll I believe other. it's supposed to one day, and I think that I will see people again. I'm very excited about that possibility. Yeah, I have the Spindle Splintered is the uh, maybe most fun I've had writing since the Witch's Guide story, because there's nothing more fun than a genre-aware narrator and <laughs> getting to write. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and, and it would be fair to say, I mean, without getting too much into that story, because it has its own time, that the protagonist there also shares a reasonable amount in common with <laughs> you, frankly. Look, I don't know how people write wildly outside of their own experiences. I am not that person. And at some point in an early interview, people were like, how'd you come up with January? I was like, I don't know. She's kind of me. And they were like, oh, isesn't that a little gauche? And I was like, I don't know. Is it? Is that a rule? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, on that, thank you so much time for, for making time to talk to us. I genuinely appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And... This is, for the first time with a guest in several months, this has been the Coot Street Podcast.